three, two, one. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. Her name is Elaine Shannon, and she recently published a book just this year, a couple months ago, titled Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius and his empire. And I just finished the book today. It's an excellent book. I really enjoyed this uh, true crime tale. It's a very modern tale. And she has also written a few other books. She's written other uh, true crime books. One is The Spy Next Door, The Extraordinary Life, Secret Life of Philip Robert Philip Hansen. And an earlier book, which uh, was about uh, Desperados, Latin drug lords, U.S. lawmen, and the war America can't win. So, Elaine Shannon, are you there? Yes, I am, and I'm uh, looking forward to this interview. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for agreeing to the interview. For people who uh, don't know you or your your background, can you take uh, talk a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the subject of LaRue? Sure. Uh, I was a correspondent in the Washington Bureau of Time magazine for 20 years, and before that, Newsweek magazine. I've always covered hard topics, intelligence, uh, crime, organized crime particularly, and other nefarious things that most people don't like to cover, but I do. Right. So, I mean, the Desperados is, is uh, you know, pretty tough one. And Hanson also was about, he was a spy for the Russians. He was an FBI agent, correct? That's right. He was a twisted, brilliant guy. And now I'm writing about Paul LaRue, an even more twisted, even more brilliant guy. And how did you become interested in that, in this story? Well, who can resist a psychological thriller? I know I can't. I was writing about the uh, DEA Special Operations Division, which does uh, interesting cases about major, major figures all over the world. Most people have never heard of it, but what the SOD, as they call it, does is try to find the biggest, richest, most evil people who are doing the most to finance war and terrorism and destabilize the world. Uh, so when one of them told me about Paul LaRue, uh, I, I said, well, that's got my name on it. I've got to chase that. I was interested both in LaRue himself, who's a completely unknown figure, deliberately, for a reason, and the uh, men and women who climbed into his head and figured out how to lure him to a place where they could get him. Right. And uh, so maybe that's a, a question about this, this mysterious figure. Who was or is Paul LaRue? Paul LaRue is a man from no place. He uh, was born in white Rhodesia, a place that doesn't exist on the map anymore. He was illegitimate had no uh, parents that recognized him. He was adopted by some white Rhodesians. And uh, when he was about 12, he was taken over to South Africa because uh, Rhodesia had become Zimbabwe. The economy was falling apart, and white colonists couldn't make a living anymore. So he grew up in South Africa, but he didn't like it very much. He was a nerd. He was overweight. He liked to play with his computer and work on his computer and sleep with his computer. He wasn't into sports and athletics like the other young white South Africans. He took off for London when he was 20. He stayed in Europe drifting around for a spell doing uh, IT jobs of a very specialized kind. He got into cybersecurity, helping ministries, law firms, banks secure their data 
when he got to be about 30, he decided he wanted to be very, very, very rich, and he didn't care how. He knew that it would he'd have to become a criminal, so he became a very brilliant master criminal. And he, he got his start in that kind of criminal world. He, he was an online at the very kind of beginning of the Internet selling pharmaceuticals, correct? That's right. He figured out that Americans particularly, and others, but we have the most money for this sort of thing, Americans loved online shopping, and we also liked drugs. This was back in the day when cocaine was hot, but he somehow foresaw that cocaine demand was going to drop off, but uh, demand for pills, opioids, but also sleeping potions and Viagra and hair loss treatments, all of that stuff, that was going to soar. And he got in on the absolute beginning of that. Right. And he was very sophisticated. He used his computer knowledge and literacy to kind of uh, shield himself. You use the term stovepiping in your book where he had a variety of other different businesses. But he, uh, you know, I think he set up shop in the Philippines and kind of hid the real interest of, you know, who owned the, what was it, RX, what was the name of the business? RX Limited. RX. But if you look at the, at the websites of that day, he had all kinds of names, better meds, cheaper meds. Uh, one thing they had in common, they had sexy people on them, people who looked like they were sexy doctors, sexy nurses, or sexy patients. They were all white and very clean cut. They, a lot of his websites said, a Canadian pharmacy, and of course it was not Canadian or a pharmacy. It was a place where you could buy pills without a prescription. Right, and it was it was a huge uh, business. I mean, at a certain point, that was very it was uh, in the hundreds of millions. I, I think you wrote in your book that there was one deposit for the the pharmaceuticals at one bank for like two hundred and thirty seven million dollars. So it was a remarkable yeah. yeah. Uh, D, some DEA agents in Minneapolis got on to him in around 2007 or got on to this business and wondered what it was. And eventually they totaled up that in four years he had made $300 million in sales off 3 million uh, transactions in prescription drugs. This was illegal because a real uh, prescription drug sale has to involve a real doctor and a real pharmacist. Uh, these did come from a pharmacy, but the doctors never saw the patients. Uh, he probably made tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars more sales. That's just what they were able to figure out from the documents. Uh, this is a bad thing because you should see a doctor before getting a prescription because your prescriptions can conflict, you can die. But uh, it wasn't much of a violation under U.S. law then. It was a violation of the Federal Food and Drug Act. Uh, it was called misbranding or pharmaceutical fraud. These agents in Minneapolis worked for years and were never able to get enough evidence to bring an indictment against Paul LaRue for doing this. Gotcha. But that was kind of where he got his start. He, then he kind of branched out using kind of... I mean, I think his story is in the background of the rise of the internet and globalization, where he was using, uh, running kind of all kinds of, looking for where the best money was and using encrypted mobile devices, satellite phones, dark web. Uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what his other businesses were. Sure. Well, there were other people in the online 
prescription business. He didn't invent it, but he was best at it by far. They all hacked each other and stole customer lists and attacked each other's servers. But he could do that better than anybody because he was a cryptographer. He had taught himself very, very sophisticated cryptography. He wasn't a hacker by trade mainly, but he could do it if he needed to, and he could certainly hire them. And so all of that enabled him to hide his own websites in some pretty uh, uh, attack-proof modes. He also put his servers in places that nobody was looking for them, Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, uh, parts of uh, the Caribbean, and of course Manila. Manila was his main base and where he lived because he had uh, call centers staffed with very cheap workers, and there were a lot of girls that he could get cheap. He liked girls a lot, and uh, seeing as how he grew to about 350 pounds, eating nothing but McDonald's and pizzas, he wasn't the most attractive guy physically. Although, i, I got to say, when I saw him, he looked like an older Marlon Brando to me. He had a certain kind of heft that was pretty fetching, but not like uh, an athlete or anything When like When that. you saw him, did you see him in court in New York or... Yes, I saw him in court in New York when he testified against his henchmen, and I guess we'll get the, to get that. To that. And I saw him earlier in Minneapolis in a very brief hearing testifying against the people who ran the pharmaceutical business. That right. case was interesting, but so weak that everybody got off. Uh, the cases were all dismissed. But there's no doubt about it. Pills were big money, and they still are. Look at our opioid crisis now. Right, and he was involved selling OxyContin, uh, Vicodin, I think, were like some of the big things that he was definitely interested in. And he employed close to 2,000 people at his, at the apex of his business, so it was not a small operation at all. No, at one time he was the biggest internet, illegal, biggest illegal internet pill seller that DEA knew about. And he was one of FedEx's biggest customers because when you put in your order and you paid them, uh, you could get a get it sent to you FedEx. He didn't start out doing opioids. He's not the author of the opioid crisis, but he he jumped on that train when it looked like he was not going to get caught and when it looked like it was too lucrative to resist. So he was he was getting bigger and bigger in opioids and he was starting to smuggle. He hooked up with the Sinaloa cartel to smuggle about 4 million tramadols, which are a not the highest rank opioid, but they'll kill you if you take enough of them or if a child gets them, and that recently happened. So he was moving in fast to wherever it looked lucrative, but he was careful at first not to attract the worst kind of attention to himself so that he could get started. And how how did his business progress then? Like, what uh, where did he go? He kind of had this idea that he was he was kind of a James Bond villain figure, where he wanted to set up his own kind of encampment in Somalia and use that as kind of a nexus point for smuggling all kinds of stuff, small arms. He really thought of himself as like another Victor or compared himself to another gunrunner, Victor Bout or Boot, B-O-U-T. You write about him often in the book. but he had Yes, Victor Boot was a big Russian arms dealer, probably one of the world's biggest, maybe the world's biggest in small arms. And, or uh, guerrilla groups and insurgents, things like that. And you kind of, I mean, in your book, the narrative kind of talks about the DEA agents who, some of these agents who were pursuing 
LaRue pursued Boot as well. That's right. Most people don't think that DEA chases gun runners, but DEA does chase gun runners. The thing you have to understand is that after 9-11 particularly, gun running and drug trafficking became totally intertwined. I went to Afghanistan uh, in 2010 and 2011 because DEA had surged there to try to go after the heroin money that was financing the Taliban. I discovered two things. One, it was financing the Taliban, but it was also financing a lot of warlords that were on the U.S. side, A, and B, the money was huge. Uh, nobody wanted to get rid of that money. It was the only industry there. And that money was paying for the arms. It was paying to kill Americans. It was paying to kill civilians. And it's still going on because nobody figured out how to stop it without going after uh, narcotics kingpins that are too powerful in that country. Well, that gave me a lot of ideas about the arms trade, and it gave DEA a lot of ideas, too. They went after Victor Boot and brought him in, and around 08, they also brought in a Syrian arms dealer and terror financier named Mansur al-Kassar. That became the brand of a little group in the Special Operations Division called the 960 Group. That specifically is known as the narco-terrorism group. That is the people who use narcotics money to finance war, terrorism, instability. That's what I wanted to write about. That's what I focused on. And when I found out that the DEA had a new kind of criminal in its uh, sights uh, back in 2012 and 2013, naturally, I went after that story. And it's interesting you bring that up because in your book you also mentioned that LaRue La said that that's what he wanted to do. He was interested in wars and instability. That's how he could make money. So he was definitely interested. Yeah, war is money. War yeah. is money. That's what he said. And he enjoyed playing the villain uh, when the he, he was finally gotten by the agents. He was describing his assets, some of which they, the agents down and some of which are still out there, I believe. Everybody believes that. He said, well, I have an island, you know. And they said, what? Why do you need an island? And he said, every villain needs an island. Right. And that was in uh, the Philippines, right? Yeah. Yes, evil laugh. Uh, It got overrun by guerrillas, but if he had spent more time there, instead of getting arrested, he probably would have found a way to buy off the guerrillas. He did buy off uh, some other guerrillas in the Philippines. He just gave them money. Uh, Money solves a lot of problems. A lot of political problems are solved with money. He also bought off the Somali pirates because in Somalia, as you mentioned, he wanted to build an Amazon kind of like uh, delivery system and warehouse system and uh, fulfillment system for small arms. People all over the world want a lot of small arms, warlords, rich people, uh, insurgents of all kinds, and he wanted to supply them. He knew that they you don't just buy one gun. If you are a rich guy and you have a whole coterie of bodyguards, you need 10, 12, 15, 20, 30, 50. So he created his own army. He created his own uh, base. He was building another base. He was building an airstrip for cargo planes, a seaport for sea, uh, for ships to bring in arms where they were going to stage them there in Somalia 
and then ship them back out to whoever had top dollar. That's where he met the Somali parents, and he bought them off. And that, he, there was a consistent theme within the book, too, of him just buying off officials in uh, the Philippines, in Africa, fake passports, all kinds of, uh, you know, he had his front men going in and, and arranging transactions and payoffs, I mean, constantly. Yes, absolutely. He believed that you could buy anybody for just about anything. He was quite shocked when he encountered a couple of people that he could not buy. And he also kind of developed kind of a, his hand. I mean, he really coveted having pretty tough people, mercenaries and other kind of uh, ex-military types around him, right? That's right. He uh, testified at the trial of the head of his hitmen and two of the other hitmen. And he said that he hired the guy, the guy's name is Joseph Hunter. He's from Kentucky. He was 24 years, a drill sergeant and sniper and sniper trainer in the U.S. Army. Excellent record. But he bought him off and made him head of his team and said that he picked people like him and like his predecessor, who, by the way, LaRue killed for stealing. He picked them because they liked to torture animals. They liked to kill. They enjoyed killing. LaRue enjoyed killing. He wasn't a good killer. Uh, He was not uh, mechanically inclined. He had memorized all the parts of a gun, but he couldn't really handle a gun. But when he killed somebody once uh, and the person was just about dead, he grabbed a gun and shot up the corpse and just thoroughly enjoyed it and liked to recount that story. because So he, he would have killed a lot more people as he got more comfortable with guns. But he, there was a lot of deaths surrounding him, people he who worked for him or people that he felt, he always kind of, there was another thing, it seems like everybody was trying to steal from him or he claimed people were stealing from him. And a lot of those people met uh, bitter fate. That's right. His business model was Silicon Valley style, which means, uh, they call it lean startup, which means you use your computer, you use the internet, uh, basically, he set up a cartel with his butt and a chair and a laptop. None of this retinue, no cousins, no consignieres, no legal advisors. He just did it on his own, and he hired temp workers, and when he got tired of them or didn't need them anymore, they were gone. If he thought they were stealing, he did have them killed or threatened to have them killed. That was his one flaw in his business plan he was a little paranoid and so uh, eventually he made somebody mad who uh, damned him out who, who ratted him out but in the meantime his his enforcers made a pact among themselves that okay if he tells you to kill me uh we're going to fake my death and we're going to get some blood and we'll make a realistic looking photo and then i will disappear uh, they all agreed to do that except for one man, and that was Hunter, the head enforcer. He loved taking orders, and he loved killing. So eventually LaRue ordered a guy we called Jack, that's what the name that LaRue used, ordered him killed, and Hunter was ready to do it. Uh, Jack took off, and he uh, dropped a dime into the CIA uh, website tip line. Gotcha. And that was kind of how it all started to unravel for LaRue, is that the DE agents uh, actually were working with the CIA. You talk about 
some of the rivalries between the DEA and the CIA. But at this, in this one instance, they found this tip into the CIA, and that's how they got their inside man in, into the Ruse organization. That's right. If you want to get into an organized crime group, you, you really, really need to penetrate it. In the United States, and you talk to any investigator, they'll tell you uh, that documents are good. But there's nothing that can beat a, a credible eyewitness. They needed an eyewitness, and they also needed somebody who could help them, the agents I'm talking about, help them understand what made LaRue tick and what motivated him because they couldn't get him in the Philippines. They needed to maneuver in some place where the local police would arrest him and honor a, an American warrant. There are a lot of places in the world that won't do that but there are a few that will do that uh, and that's why they picked the spot where they could manipulate him they needed an inside man and LaRue's flawed business plan had him killing people that that uh, then weren't loyal to him huh. duh huh. so that's how uh, he finally fell right so I mean they, he was he was trying to go to Brazil which at that time, well, actually, recent does not have a strong extradition agreement, but, uh, you know, so there was definitely, once the DEA kind of, you really, uh, these are interesting, the people who were pursuing LaRue and his goons and his henchmen really were interesting characters and very skilled in presenting themselves as either marks or um, operators. I thought that that was an interesting aspect of the book. Yes, uh these DEA guys are ordinary people. They don't have advanced degrees. They're not geniuses, but they have something that not everybody has. And this is just this cop gut that tells them where to be and where not to be and how to read somebody. And I don't know whether you can teach that. I say you can't teach it and you can't really learn it, but they've got it. And I thought maybe if I spent enough time with them, I'd learned something too, and I did, because I wanted, I wanted that story as much as I wanted the story about LaRue. How do you fine-tune your instincts so that you know where somebody's going? You can see over the horizon. You can have a sense of what turns somebody on and what excites, basically, a, a psychopath. That's what they've got. Right, and so they lured him in with the promise of, uh, I think, a Colombian transaction or something like that, and that's how they kind of got the hook in LaRue's mouth, is uh, something like that, right? Yes, he. most people that this group had gotten was, were just greedy. Uh, you, you dangle $10 million or 20 or $30 million in front of them, and they go for it. They just love money. LaRue was more complicated. He had... A, a lot of money. He lived very simply. He wore old cargo pants, shorts, and old T-shirts. And like I say, he ate pizzas and fried chicken. And he had yachts. He had fancy cars, Lambos, and things like that. But really, he, he what did he, else did he need? Well, he needed something that he didn't know. He was He was really excited, almost sexually excited by... Um, new gimmicks, new tricks, new tricks of the trade. He idolized Colombians because they had created cartels back before cell phones, back when things were a lot more difficult. They made them out of nothing. And he thought that if he could make an alliance 
with the Colombian cartel, he could he could span the world. He had meth from North Korea. He was trading in that, lots of it. He had guns. He was going to get those from Iran, which makes very good small uh, infantry weapons. But what he didn't have uh, is cocaine. He experimented with growing coca in Somalia. He sent an agronomist in there. They had greenhouses. They had all kinds of equipment. But he concluded that they were not going to be able to grow enough coca to rival what Colombia already had in the Andes. Coca is a very finicky plant. It doesn't like to grow everywhere. Uh, he knew that if he got access to first-rate coca, cocaine, he could sell it in Australia and Japan and Southeast Asia for probably $200,000 a kilo, which is fantastic because you, you can go to Medellin and you can buy co cocaine wholesale for about $2,500. So the markup is astronomic if you can move it. That's mm -hmm. the trick. And he thought he could smuggle it. He could move it. He needed a partner, and what the agents cooked up was a fake Colombian. Well, actually, he's a real Colombian. Called called himself Diego, who uh, played the part of the co Colombian drug lord who could give him that last piece of his worldwide empire. He couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. That was it. And, it was, I mean, it's interesting you bring up North Korea because... He's kind of a secondary kind of uh, element in the North Koreans' drive for a nuclear program because, at least my understanding in reading the book, was that they were taking their meth income and, and channeling it towards their nuclear program. Well, that's certainly what American intelligence and the agents believe. Uh, they wanted to get deeper into North Korea and find out exactly where the money went, but uh, for a variety of reasons, they couldn't send LaRue. Once they got him into North Korea, he volunteered to go, of course, because they didn't know whether they'd get him back. But there had been other uh, undercover conversations, which strongly suggests that uh, some of that some of that uh, money goes for uh, the weapons program, some of the industrial strength, industrial quality, industrial quantity meth goes for the weapons programs. Yeah, it's remarkable. Kim Jong-un, you know, pre this precedes the whole kind of uh, uh, conflict that grew up between the Trump administration and, and North Korea. So it's it's somewhat interesting to think that uh, Vic, uh, that LaRue might have been involved in that. He was also tinkering around with the Iranian government trying to uh, provide them with missile technology, right? That's right. Uh, as I said, they make very fine small arms, and that's what he wanted. He wanted an assured source of inventory for his gun business. Uh, that was a problem because the United States government has a good relationship with many countries, most countries in the world, that make small arms, and uh, he tried getting them out of Indonesia and got caught. Uh, somebody tipped off the, the uh, Filipino Coast Guard when he was moving them into Bataan, which we've all heard of from World War II, and he, the U.S. government jumped on the Indonesian officials and said, you, you guys got to be careful who you sell to. You can't just sell to anybody because it could be terrorist. They have a terrorist problem there, and so they agreed. 
there were other tries, and it occurred, it occurred to LaRue that one country that's not subject to influence by the United States is Iran. So he sent two emissaries there, and they negotiated for a couple of years. And finally Iran said, yeah, we can sell you. We've, we've got all these arms. We'd be glad to sell you if you do something for us. We need certain electronic components that go in weapons, and we need certain other things. Uh, you need to get this stuff for us, and then we'll do business. One of the things that the Iranians wanted was better navigation for its small rockets and missiles. Uh, Iran gives small rockets and missiles to Hezbollah, to Hamas, and other proxies uh, that use them to shoot at Israel, sometimes at Saudi Arabia, uh, had threatened recently to shoot them at U.S. installations and allied installations in the Middle East and maybe even Afghanistan. These things go up, they come down, gravity brings them down because there's no guidance system. LaRue looked at what the Iranians wanted and said, well, I can uh, harness the GPS system to help you create a navigation system that will make your missiles precision-guided, so-called smart missiles, smart rockets. That would be a game-changer if he had achieved that, because then he could assure Iran that its proxies could hit the water system in Israel, the command and control system, the communication system. Israel would strike back with such ferocity that it would ignite a new level of warfare in the Middle East, and it would greatly destabilize that part of the world and maybe further. Yeah, so, I mean, you just see these tendrils of his influence in nation-states, and you had an interesting quote in the intro to the book comparing, kind of talking about, it was a uh, member of the U.S. Special Forces, Nagata, who said, we're seeing unfold before us that non-state actors, whether malign or benevolent, can accrue power, influence, capability, and reach that were once exclusively available only to nation-states. So I thought that was interesting um, in context with uh, LaRue's reach reach really yes exactly and that's why i use that quote it, when i was in afghanistan you heard this a lot malign actors what is that well that's an individual who has a lot of power and often wealth doesn't necessarily have to have wealth but it's an individual it could be a power broker it could be the brother of a president it could be the sister of a president but somebody who's not a nation state but because he or she has got tech or got con connections, can really upset the apple cart and can undo all kinds of uh, uh, arrangements. We're seeing that now in Afghanistan. We will see it in other places. Luru is one of those. He could had as, certainly as much power as some nation states. And he, if he had rolled into Africa with smart missiles, which was his plan, he was wanting to sell these things not only to Iran. Iran promised him 100 million bucks for a smart missile. He also wanted to create versions that he could sell to insurgent groups in Africa and throughout Asia. Now, there are a lot of groups that would just love to have a smart rocket. Who doesn't want that? You can threaten all kinds of people with that, your neighbors and everything else. It'd be a wonderful thing to use as a, an extortion device. Right. This is why he was so dangerous. He was not just killing 
individuals, although he was, people who worked for him, he was going to create situations where thousands, maybe tens of thousands of innocent people would die. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up that point about the smart missile because that's that's what he was doing with Iran. He wasn't just trying to offer Iran something. He was trying to develop it himself. So he wasn't even looking just to Iran as a possible purchaser, but just to have the technology for use, like you said, to you know spread it around Africa. So he's definitely this kind of destabilizing, uh, you know, non-state actor. It's pretty remarkable. Exactly, and he had a clandestine weapons lab that he set up in Manila. He hired about thirty Romanian scientists and engineers to staff it, and that's what they were working on. They were working on missile navigation. Uh, he claimed that he didn't tell them exactly the purpose of the the project because he chopped it up into little bits so they wouldn't understand it. He had it all in his head. They did do something that I found quite interesting. In order to raise cash while he was working on this longer-range project, longer range project, which is quite complicated, he invented and he had his team invent a new kind of explosive made of non-monitored materials so that Iran could give it to their its proxies, to these little cells of terrorists that are scattered around, and nobody would really notice that somebody was accumulating these ingredients. The ingredients were coffee sweetener. Right. Believe it or not, and this hard to believe, Certain coffee sweeteners are made out of a chemical called ETN, which is chemically related to a chemical called PETN, which is a well-known high explosive. It was in the shoe bomber's shoes, if you remember that. Mm -hmm. uh, military uh, demolition people use PETN as, uh, on its own or to set off larger charges of stuff that doesn't blow up quite as fast. It's a very, very dangerous stuff. It's used to cut girders with something called detonation cord. I think Timothy McVeigh had a little bit of it that set off the chain of explosives in Oklahoma City. It's a bad thing, and it's certainly a terrible thing to give to terrorists, and that he already did that. He got paid $5 million in gold bars for that recipe, and the Iranians brought it to his yacht off the coast of Indonesia. These bars were collected by Dave Smith, LaRue's right-hand man. They were collected by Dave Smith, but then this was one of his situations where he believed somebody was stealing from him, and Dave Smith, uh, uh, he was murdered, murdered at the behest of LaRue, right? That's right. Dave Smith was claimed to be a British ex-military. I don't know whether he was or not. Nobody knows, but he taught a lot of tactical classes, SWAT classes in the United States and elsewhere, and he was a rough customer. He ran a bar uh, that was one of LaRue's fronts. He recruited mercenaries from all over the world. He was probably a meth addict. He recruited a meth dealer. He drove around Manila in, a, I believe, a Lamborghini. He had yachts. Uh, LaRue tolerated all this because he attracted a lot of attention, and nobody talked much about LaRue. They all talked about the flamboyant, nasty Dave Smith. Well, one day LaRue started thinking about that gold, and he wondered where it was. David never delivered it to him. 
so he started asking around. He found an ex-girlfriend of Dave Smith. Dave Smith had many girlfriends and ex-girlfriends, and she, this particular woman told LaRue that, oh, Dave Smith sold that stuff. He fenced it, or whatever you do with gold. Uh, LaRue happened to be trading in gold for years and really loved gold, and he just blew his top. So he summoned a hitman from South Africa, a former cop, a biker, and this guy named Marius and LaRue uh, summoned Dave Smith out to the coastline out in the countryside uh, told him this preposterous story that they needed to bury a safe because it contained some dirty money. Uh, so they told Dave Smith to start digging in the sand. While he was down in the hole, uh, Marius started shooting him. And then the gun jammed because it was sand. And then they, LaRue and Marius started fighting over the gun. And finally they got the gun to work, finished off Dave Smith while circled by feral dogs, and then went and had a beer. Right, oh, yeah, that... they dumped Dave, Dave Smith in, in the ocean. They tied his body to a, uh, an old uh, outboard motor, and then they went and had a beer. And they did that also to his associates, too. So they kind of just cleaned up all of Dave Smith's, you know, business partners, Cheeto and this other guy. So a lot of people, you know, there was a lot of hits uh, surrounding LaRue. That's right. And uh, months later, LaRue decided he wanted to kill Dave Smith's wife and son and told one of the mercenaries to do it. And then that's the only time Joseph Hunter ever showed any compassion. He told the guy don't carry out that hit of the innocent woman and the innocent son. But that's the kind of guy that LaRue was. He would send people to chase down people all over the world. People were, who worked for him were terrified of him, and for good reason. He was a vengeful guy. And, you know, he eventually, uh, they, they were able to draw him into a trap, and he was taken to, I mean, these are fairly recent cases. I think he was arrested in, what, 2012? 2013 and sent to the Southern District of New York and a kind of lawyer or the prosecutor there, uh, Preet Bharara's, you know, fairly well known when he was fired by Trump, I think in 2017, you know, that was kind of big news. Uh, he was the U.S. District Attorney Preet Bharara. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, and then he kind of, plea, he, he was able to get a plea bargain and uh, he, he not all of his crimes were really prosecuted, right? Well, most, well, some were not. Murder in the Philippines uh, is an infraction of the Filipino justice system, which is pretty broken. So I've heard some talk that the Philippines would like to extradite him, but I don't think that's going to work at all. He was prosecuted. He was, he wanted to make a plea bargain because when he was arrested, he was 38 years old. The DEA agents lured him to uh, Monrovia, where they had a good relationship with Fumba Sirleaf, the stepson of the president, Ellen Sirleaf, who had won a Nobel Prize for cleaning up after a civil war. So Fumba Sirleaf and his people agreed to arrest LaRue, honor the American warrant and the American indictment, hand him over to DEA for expulsion. He was expelled as a national security threat. He, LaRue fought them 
resisted, rolled around on the ground. They rolled around on the ground. But once they got him in the DEA airplane and they were en route to New York, he said, okay, well played, gentlemen. Now, you want somebody bigger than me. And then he proceeded to try to make a plea bargain. He ended up making a, a well, it's a plea agreement. Uh, he agreed to talk about his mercenaries, finger them, his North Korean meth team, and other people and make a full confession in exchange for which he was required to plead to crimes that exposed him to a maximum of life in prison, which is not a great bargain, but a minimum of 10 years. And he hoped that by his fulsome cooperation, he could get the minimum of 10. He's probably not going to get that. I'm just betting guessing that he'll probably get 20 to 24. He hasn't been sentenced yet because he's oh. still a government witness and appeals are still out. Interesting. I didn't know that. So it's still going on. And so all of his all of his mercenaries and hitmen all were also kind of uh, wrapped up by the DEA as well, correct? Yes, and all about, well, not all, no. There's some hitmen that are out there, and oh, I've heard from one or two of them. But... Um, Twelve of them were arrested with the help of LaRue, including Hunter, including four other mercenaries, two Germans, wait, maybe five, two Germans, a Pole, uh, another American, and uh, five uh, meth traffickers. Okay. And they, uh, most of those pleaded guilty when they saw the evidence against them, but three of them, two guys from North Carolina who killed a woman in the Philippines in a very brutal fashion on behalf of LaRue and Hunter, they were put on trial and they were convicted last uh, April, May in New York. Uh, Hunter was just recently sentenced to three life terms plus 10 plus 20, so he'll never see the light of the day, but as long as his appeals and other Litigations outstanding. Larue cannot be sentenced. Finally, fascinating. So, have you were you able to attend any of the the court proceedings? Oh yes, I wouldn't miss it. It was quite something. Larue was absolutely chilling. He told of his evil deeds in all of their stark uh, exposure. He did not show regret. I don't think he has a conscience at all. Nobody does. Nobody thinks that he uh, has reformed or can ever reform. Hmm. But he is very precise, very factual. And the agents had pulled up plenty of other evidence from his computers, his emails, other people's computers, other people's emails, other people's phones to confirm everything that he said. The jury believed him. The jury did not believe the uh, three hitmen who were on trial, and all three were convicted. Interesting. So he was the witness for the prosecution in, in those those cases, right? That's right. He was he was on Team America. Team America. So they turned this master kingpin criminal, at least for a while. So, I, I mean, he's just biding his time. He was able not to get sentenced. It's pretty remarkable uh, the whole, the whole arc of these cases—it's really incredible, incredible story. Great book. Thank you. I've never seen anything like it. That's why I had to do the book. I just had to show 
people what it is like in the 21st century when you have a genius, a guy who can use the Internet, who can operate purely in cyberspace and in the darkest corner of cyberspace. He made his own dark web, and he mm -hmm. lurked in it for years. Yeah, and then he became public. And and when you look in his face, you look in his eyes, you see something very, very dark, a satanic kind of figure. Well, that's a great way to end it. I also thought it was pretty cool that you had an intro from Michael Mann, one of my favorite directors, directed Heat. And uh, I love the movie Heat, but uh, that was pretty cool. So how were you able oh, to get yes. that intro? Yeah. Well, he Michael Mann made a... In an Emmy-winning miniseries for NBC off my first book, Desperados, about the murder of DEA agent Enrique Camarena in Mexico. Uh, we became friends. We kept in touch maybe once twice a year. I called him uh, a few years ago to ask him about something that somebody wanted me to do. He said, don't do that, but what are you doing? And I told him about LaRue, and he said, oh, my Lord, I want that. I want to do that. That's the villain, the modern villain, the yeah. 21st century villain. Nobody understands it. They're out there. This is the God. And I said, well, shoot, if you want to do it, I'm in. And I was writing, and I thought maybe he'd be a chapter in a book. And he said, no, no, this is a book. And he was absolutely right. He's usually right. He has better three-dimensional vision than I do. So he started reading the book as I produced chapters, and he would tell me when I was missing something. He's a great writing partner. Cool. Every word in this book is true and has been checked out five different ways, but he's going to make a movie out of it oh, soon. Great. And I'm going to be very interested to see how he does with it. It's voluminous material, and he'll have to figure out how to make it into two and a half hours, but I'm sure he can do it. Well, I look forward to seeing that. I mean, he was great. It was a little longer, but uh, really enjoyed that. Is there anything that we missed or anything you'd like to follow up in in regards to the book Hunting LaRue, The Inside Story? of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius in his empire. Well, I, I just want to make the point that people use the term uh, true crime a lot, and it is true crime. Every word is true, but it's bigger than just an individual who's a bad person who kills other individuals. This guy was going to take on the world, and he was going to upend whole continents, whole regions. If he had gotten his way, our world would be a lot uglier and a lot more dangerous because of his interest in creating weapons of mass destruction for Iran and other people who would use them. So it's thank God he's in jail. So um, where can people reach out to you or, or find the book? Do you have a website, anything like that? I sure do. Well, you can get the book from any bookseller, including the online booksellers, uh, just search Hunting LaRue. Uh, you can find me under my name, Elaine Dash, sorry, Elaine-Shannon.com. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and would love to have Twitter followers because I'm not good at it at all, but I'm trying. And we're putting up reviews with the help of my son's fiance. <laughs> That's my team. I'm just doing this myself. I've been alone doing this and with my family for quite a while and I've enjoyed every minute of it and I'm now I'm delighted to have Michael Mann on my, my corner. Great. Well, and you just published it. I mean, I thought I saw on Amazon the publication date was February 19th, 2019. Is that correct? That's correct. Gotcha. Okay. So, again, Elaine Shannon, 
She can be found on Amazon or Twitter or Facebook. The title of the book, again, is Hunting LaRue, the inside story of the DEA takedown of a criminal genius in his empire. Congratulations. It's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Have a great night. I appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay.